Our first reading is from Job chapter 41, verses 1 to 8. The Lord said to Job, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down its tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it make many supplications to you? Will it speak soft words to you? Will it make a covenant with you to be taken as your servant's servant forever? Will you play with it as with a bird? Or will you put it on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its skin with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? Lay hands on it. Think of the battle. You will not do it again. So Job 42 and starting at the first verse. Then Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you declare to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has done. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told him, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then there came to him all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a thousand donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Keren Hapuk. In all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and his children's children four generations. And Job died old and full of days. Amen.
Well, I'd like to start our engagement with these final chapters of the book of Job by posing a question for us. My question is this, do you think that the ending of this story ruins it? If you do, you're not alone. Many people find the ending of Job intensely problematic. After all the suffering that he's been through, suddenly his fortune is restored, he's reconciled to his family, he has lots of sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys, 10 further children, including three daughters with amazing names. Frankly, this could easily be read as a total sellout, both in terms of the theology and in terms of the narrative. After all, for the first 41 chapters, the book has been doing logical and theological battle with a view of God that sees material success as a divine reward for righteousness. And yet, here at the end, the most righteous man of all gets his reward of family, friends, and a frankly enormous quantity of livestock. It's a bit like discovering that Shakespeare might have originally planned I don't know, little extra scenes for his great tragedies of Romeo and Juliet or King Lear, when everyone comes back to life and does a little dance. Except, of course, the thing is, that is exactly how they were originally played, as anyone who's been to the Globe Theatre knows well. And the thing is, we're all just suckers for a happy ending. Maybe for the book of Job to function as a successful story down the generations, it just needed a happy ending. Maybe it would have been too bleak if Job had lived in righteous misery until he died. So what are we to make of this? How can we reconcile Job's happy ending with the theology of the rest of the book that we've been exploring over the last few weeks? Well, let's take a step back into our first reading and pick up the narrative with God's final speech to Job. This is the passage that Libby read for us. And here we find uh, God once again using the language and imagery of nature to show Job that there is a far wider perspective on life than the one he is currently subjectively experiencing. I think that how you hear God's words to Job really rather depends on the tone of voice in which you choose to read them. You see, it could be read that God is simply beating Job over the head with creation, telling him that he knows nothing, he's just a little worm, so he should shut up now with his complaining. But I think this is to do an injustice to what's going on here, which is that God is offering Job an invitation to a wider way of understanding existence. The thing is, and I'm sure many of us can relate to this, when we experience trauma in our lives, our natural reaction is for us to kind of turn in on ourselves. We sometimes quite literally 
hunch over our own pain. Whether it's physical or psychological, we can find it hard to focus on anything other than our own suffering. And initially, of course, this is entirely appropriate. It's a survival strategy. And we prioritize ourselves and our immediate needs and the rest of the world can just go hang for a while. We know that this is true in our experiences of bereavement or sudden illness. It's something we all do. But if we are to live again, we cannot stay in such a place. If we spend the rest of our lives blaming or questioning ourselves or living in that place of anger at how our world has changed and is not the same as it was before, then we are no longer really living. And so after 40 chapters of focusing on his suffering, questioning the whys and wherefores of his pain, Job is challenged by God to open his eyes to a wider perspective, to see through his pain to a world that is bigger, more beautiful and more mysterious than he had previously realised. God's invitation to Job is to reorientate his worldview, to learn that despite how it feels for him, he is not the centre of the universe. The temptation for all of us is, like Job, to view the world subjectively, to judge the world according to our own pain or our own joy, to measure the universe by our own failure or our own successes. And as Job discovers, this is ultimately pointless because the world doesn't make sense from a subjective point of view. If all that matters is my suffering, my righteousness and my justice, then the world is an untenable place to live. Because of course the world is not ultimately about me. The world is not ultimately interested in me. And Job, God's invitation to Job is to realise that his place in the universe is not predicated on his own suffocating experiences and that lifting his head and looking around him and realising that there is so much more to the world is for him an invitation to live and to breathe again. An inwardly focused existence is ultimately counterproductive to our own continued existence. But a glimpse of the wider perspective of creation in all its mystery and majesty opens the door for a new way through the pain and suffering of life. Let me tell you a story from my family. I've told it before and I'm sure I'll tell it again. My grandma was married for only six weeks before her childhood sweetheart was killed in action in the Second World War. She realised she was pregnant with their child, who is my mother, after she received news of her husband's death. So I think back to 1941 to 1942, my grandma, with all her hopes of family life dashed, living in poverty, 
pregnant and then a single mother in wartime, reliant on extended family for childcare. In time, she found a way through her grief and her loss. She married again to the man I knew as my grandfather, the man who my mum knew as dad. They had further children and grandchildren and were very happy. But my grandmother had to live all the rest of her life with the memory of that time of grief and suffering, even through the years of happiness and plenty that followed. And thinking back on it, she had to choose to remarry, even though she knew the pain of losing a husband. And she discovered what Job too had to learn, which is that even when a life of suffering opens out in time to a new life of happiness, the insights gained and the scars acquired during the years of suffering are not lost. And the vulnerability to further loss and grief is always there. I think it must have taken some measure of courage for Job to rebuild his life. And whilst it is certainly true that some people suffer unto death, many more suffer for a while and then have a choice to make. God's invitation to Job is an invitation to choose life to open himself to the possibility of new life beyond his experience of death. And this, of course, is the hope that lies at the heart of the Christian faith. It is the hope of resurrection. It is the hope that death does not get the final word on life. And that whether it is the final experience of death that we must all one day face, or one of the many smaller deaths of love, relationship, health and independence that blight our days on this earth. It is the hope that whenever and however we experience loss of life, God is always inviting us to a new experience of life, challenging us to raise our eyes and gain a new perspective. In the 1980s, the philosopher Nicholas Voltestoff received a telephone call on a sunny Sunday afternoon and was told the news that his 25-year-old son, Eric, had been killed in a mountain climbing accident. And because he was a philosopher and a writer, he wrote the beautiful book, Lament for a Son, to express his grief, which is at once both unique to him, but also universal, much like Job's. I'd like to read a short excerpt from that book now as we come to a close. This is what Nicholas Volterstoff said. Why don't you just scrap this God business, says one of my bitter suffering friends. It's a rotten world. You and I have been shafted and that's that. I'm pinned down. When I survey this gigantic, intricate world, I cannot believe that it just came about. I do not mean that I have some good arguments for it being made and that I believe in those arguments. I mean that this conviction wells up irresistibly within me when I contemplate the world. The experiment of trying to abolish it does not work. When I look at the heavens, 
I cannot manage to believe that they do not declare the glory of God. When I look at the earth, I cannot bring off the attempts to believe that it does not display God's handiwork. And when I read the New Testament and look into the material surrounding it, I am convinced that the man Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. In that, I see the sign that he was more than a prophet. He was the son of God. Faith is a footbridge you don't know will hold you up over the chasm until you're forced to walk out onto it. I'm standing there now over the chasm. I inspect the bridge. Am I deluded in believing that in God, the question shouted out by the wounds of the world has its answer? Am I deluded in believing that someday I will know the answer? Am I deluded in believing that once I know the answer, I will see that love has conquered? I cannot dispel the sense of conducting my inspection in the presence of the creating, resurrecting one. Or as Job put it, from the depths of his suffering, Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 26. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God. Amen. Thank you, Simon, um, for that really thoughtful sermonette. Um, I'm just going to invite our panellists to um, prepare themselves for discussion. But before we do that, we're going to have a brief period of silent reflection um, to just gather our thoughts about what Simon's just said to us. Um, I'd like to invite all the panellists to random cameras on. I think everybody has. That's good. Um, if you want to uh, say something, could you just wave at me and, uh, you know, unmute yourselves um, if you want to comment. Um, I thought I'd just start us off with a question. So Simon was talking about the ending of Job. Um, what do you think of the way that the book of Job ends? Oh, Tomasa. Yeah, thank you, and thank you, uh, Simon, for for the sermonette. Um, of course, I I don't know, but um, my my impression is that we would be very wrong if we were focusing only on the material side of of the restoration, as it is described in in the final part of the book. Um, I, I suspect that what really matters is the, the spiritual journey, which is behind that restoration. And in that sense, it's not a conventional happy ending. The way I see it is that um, Job is arguably able to enjoy those goods and those relationships and those blessings in a, in a very different way because of the process he went through. Um, and, and if we just focus on uh, the fact that he gets back what he had lost, we, we are probably missing the most important part of the story, which is the way that the inner life through which he experiences a different relationship with those blessings and, and those items and those 
material gains. And so my, my, my reading of the ending is that the, the way he, he enjoys uh, that, that situation is, is, is very, very different in a way uh, from, from the way he enjoyed it before. And, and the deeper meaning of those blessings is, is something he, he can appreciate because of the journey. Thank you. Um, does anyone have anything they want to say about that or add to what's been said? Solomon. Yes. Yes, I think uh, in, in time of crisis, uh, it is uh, our tendency as human to calculate our losses. And people have already started calculating uh, and, and losses in this um, lockdown and the pandemic that we're going through. Like someone have said that had it not been for the lockdown, the things we would have taken two years to achieve would take 10 years to achieve. And that rested a lot to me. And when I, you know, try to see how Job's story ended, and it's recognized that God multiplied all the things that he had before, things that he had once, and then God made us twice as much. And then uh, the question is, how could we as human in this situation we find ourselves uh, think about what we will achieve? after the lockdown and we should always believe that our redeemer our redeemer lives and whatever assistance we must have lost or whatever we will gain in a period of period of time that god lives and he is there to to multiply in his own choosing thank you solomon um I was just going to share something um, because a former colleague of mine was a grief counsellor and she discussed grief and a lot of people used to say to her, oh, when does my grief diminish? When will the grief get smaller? When will the pain get smaller? Um, and she talked about a model of grief which suggests that the grief doesn't get smaller but your life gets bigger around it. So the grief is still there, your pain is still, you know, there but you still you have other things in your life you have other joys and I sort of think that's maybe what happened to Job that his grief was still there it was still present it didn't shrink or diminish but his life increased and he had other things in his life it wasn't just all about the grief um I don't know if anyone has any responses to that whether that resonates with anyone or if someone thinks no that's that's not how it is at all <laughs> Nigel I think that is very much how it is. I've been reading uh, the diary of Anne Frank again lately, and she quite often talks about glimpsing the sky. So she's locked up with her family in an attic, and, and she said, today I saw a patch of blue sky, and I looked at it and it was there. And I realized that there is a world outside of our problem. There is a world outside of our darkness, and it gives me hope. And I think, we can, we can very much be locked up in our own situation and in what's going on. We can be locked, 
locked up in our own world in a lockdown and thinking about it. I, I would have been flying on holiday on Thursday and was feeling miserable about it yesterday. But actually, the world is a bit bigger than my world and what I see. And, and I think there's a comfort in that. You know, we can look up and see the blue sky most of the time. And when, when we do see things from outside of our situation, and when we see our grief from outside of it, then rather when, when we're wrapped up in it, I agree, life gets bigger. The grief is still there. We learn, we learn to live with it because there are other things occupying our attention. Thank you, Nigel. I really like that idea of the blue sky and being able to see it. Um, just to draw people's attention to the chat, because I've, a couple of people have added their comments. Um, anyone listening, you're very welcome to add your comments to the chat. We might have time to read everything out, but it'd be really good for everyone to, you know, see your thoughts or reflections because they're just as valuable um, as everyone who's on camera at the moment. Um, I was just going to read something that Dermot, um, I think it was Dermot, yeah, so it said. Um, so it says, thank you, Simon. I love that the end of the uh, Job text, uh, one of the oldest books in the Bible, that his daughters are named and given an inheritance. Um, it speaks to me of a countercultural grace and inclusion and somehow speaks to me of growth through suffering and encountering God. That's really quite interesting because I've never really looked at it that way. Um, any of the other panelists on camera want to add anything to that? Liz is waving at me. Hi. Um, yeah, I, um, whenever I, I, I'm on the panel I, and I hear the Bible reading, I always kind of try and jot down a few things that immediately come to mind. And the word I jotted down was perspective. So obviously Simon kind of picked up on, on the perspective idea that actually it's how you view, often how you view things and that sometimes I think it's very hard to view things differently. And um, uh, it, it's, um, it's very easy to kind of fold in on yourself and, and to only be able to see yourself. But I think there's another really important part of this um, story that, that we haven't quite touched on, which is how God responds to the friends. So obviously at the end, you've got Job coming back uh, and, and getting, you know, all the, all the good stuff and sort of, you know, um, a happy ending. I always love a happy ending. Um, I know that, that often filters nowadays are seen as being not great if they have an happy ending, but um, it is problematic in this one, the way it happens, I feel. But the really key thing that came out to me during this was, um, you know, God kind of telling off the friends and saying, look, you got it wrong. You didn't do what was right. Um, you know, Job hadn't done anything wrong. And so I think that perspective in this is, is really important because not only is it us being able to understand our own situation and how the world's so much bigger, but actually there's an awful lot of freedom in this text because at the end, Job is kind of told, well, all of that stuff those friends were saying, all of that bad stuff, all of that stuff where you were being, getting guilt put on you and blame put on you, that's not true. Um, stuff just happens and so I think that for us certainly in Bloomsbury this has a real resonance so, so what Dermot said really in that there is this is countercultural so the idea of the day was that um, the established sort of religious thought and, and the idea that was prevalent and the idea that the friends demonstrate is if bad stuff's happened to you it's your fault you must have done something wrong and actually this is totally counter cultural to that 
and, and God comes out at the end saying, you friends have not been friends, you know, you, you, you need to kind of repent. And I think, therefore, what it's sort of showing us as a church is that actually, and as individuals, you know, often we have this kind of judgment put on us and this guilt put on us that we're not necessarily doing things the right way, you know, and we're told that because of our race or because of our, you know, our skin colour or our gender or our um, sexuality or anything like that, that we've got all this guilt being put on us that we're not doing it correctly. And that actually, you know, that there is that implied judgment and that actually, um, this gives a bit of freedom to that because we're basically told to get a perspective and to realize that God is so much bigger. So not only is it so much bigger for us as individuals, but so much bigger um, with others uh, and others' judgments. And basically God is God. Thank you, Liz. I saw a lot of nods and someone, someone in the chat said, preach Liz. So <laughs> it's resonating. <laughs> That's good. Does anyone else on the panel want to add anything to what's been said? Wanna wave at me if you do? No, um, if that's the case, and I'm just going to read something that Jeff said, um, which um, shows he's much more, you know, um, spiritual than me because he woke up this morning thinking about Job. I don't think I've ever woken up in the morning thinking about Job. Um, I woke up this morning, um, good opening for a blues. A lot of questions about Job tumbled through my mind. Too many to remember. Some of them were, did God love Job's first wife? Did Job miss her and the children? Is it just a story and these characters never really developed because they're not really relevant? Is the story about building models of God and testing them? Can we really tell the difference between a model of God and a real God? Is the whole part of Job to get us to ask this sort of question? So I say we meet God in these questions. We meet, we meet dogma, doctrine, and creeds in the answers. The questions are much more. Uh, the questions are help more helpful, and the answers less so. The theologians, theologians say God is unchanging. I say we develop our understanding model of God all the time. The conviction that God doesn't change should not mean that our mental model of God is fixed and must not change. I think that's um, a lot of questions and a lot of things to think about, um, which is good as we end on some questions that we can consider. Let us pray. Loving and all-powerful God, as we come to you today to pray for those in need, we remember the story of Job and all that he suffered, how he endured so much pain and loss despite his righteousness. How he challenged and cursed God as to why this should happen to him and how he rejected the explanations of his friends. We can find ourselves in similar situations. We too rail against you and ask why such things are happening to us and our loved ones. We pray now that we, like Job, may hear your voice speaking from out of the storms around us. That you will lead us to understand when we have been foolish. And that just as you did with Job, you will give us another chance. Give us the courage to realize this as Job did. And like him to respond in shame for our earlier reactions. 
And also like Job, when you give us another opportunity, help us not to forget what we have learned during our times of suffering. Help us to remember our ignorance and our refusal to listen to you. May such experience draw us closer to you and help us to pray with deeper intention for the needs of those around us and in the rest of the world. So now we bring before you again those who are suffering from COVID-19, the medical staff, and all those who care for them, for their families and friends who are anxious about their recovery. We pray too for those who seem careless that their actions may spread the virus, and for those whose work necessarily brings them into contact with the wider public and a greater possibility of infection. We pray for those whose jobs are threatened or have already been lost due to the downturn in the economy, both here and worldwide. We ask that effective systems may be conceived and set up that prevent them from increased suffering due to ensuing poverty and depression. We pray too for the leaders of the world that they may make decisions with wisdom, thinking particularly at this time of the people of Hong Kong, where political unrest is leading to violence, of Palestine and Israel, where issues of land and race continue to play havoc with people's lives, in the United States, where elections are pending, in France, where local elections have changed the political scene. And for South Africa, where coronavirus seems to be at the peak of infection. We think especially of our own political leaders who are seeking to stimulate growth in our economy. May their decisions benefit the population as a whole. May they not simply seek to line their own pockets but rather to enable all to have a better standard of life. Above all, we ask that the lessons learned during lockdown may prevail as we all start to rebuild our lives and our society, that we may have at the forefront of our minds and plans an ongoing concern for the well-being of others and for the environment which is at the heart of everything. Finally, we pray for ourselves, that we may have the courage to endure, the faith to remain constant, and the hope that you give us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, who shows us the way to fullness of life. Amen.